Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups, advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For today's episode, I'll be talking to Elvis Chan. Elvis is Assistant Special Agent in Charge, assigned to the San Francisco FBI field office. Chan manages a squad responsible for investigating national security cyber matters and has over 14 years of experience in the Bureau. Elvis has extensive industry experience from the semiconductor industry. I got the chance to interview Elvis Chan as part of the FBI's outreach program. I'm grateful for his time today and look forward to covering practical advice for helping stay secure. Hi, Elvis. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. The podcast has a lot of international listeners. For people who aren't familiar with the FBI, can you tell me a bit about the Bureau does and what kind of crimes it investigates? I think for an international audience, the most relevant way to say it is that we're like the national law enforcement agency, although there are 14,000 local and state level law enforcement agencies, but we're the one that works across interstate lines. We also have an international presence, as you're aware of. We are also post 9-11, the domestic security agency. So trying to prevent the next terrorist attack from happening or, you know, the next big cyber attack from happening. So that's the dual hat that we wear is law enforcement agency and domestic security. What exactly are national security cyber matters? Anything that is either related to a foreign state like Russia, China and Iran come to mind or a foreign terrorist organization like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah. Although we would also call domestic terrorism, so any anything terrorism related. So domestic terrorism would also be a national security issue. And then what makes it cyber specific? So anything that is related to computer intrusions, right? Like network intrusions, cyber network operations, those are all considered uh, cyber issues that Um, the FBI would handle within the cyber branch. So I I run the cyber branch for FBI San Francisco, and we have a cyber division that's at headquarters. There are programming uh, division. So that's how that would work. You know, we were also discussing just because it's online doesn't necessarily mean it's a cyber crime. So we were talking uh, about business email compromises where someone just gets an email and they're trying to elicit someone to do something, typically to wire money to a bad guy's account. That is not considered a cyber crime because there's no computer intrusion nexus. There's social engineering, obviously, but typically our white collar crime squads would handle that. As part of my research, the episode, I learned a lot through the San Francisco field office website. I guess you have bulletins of issues you cover. Can you tell me a little bit more about the specific issues that you investigate? Some of the things that have been ripped from the headlines that you're aware of are the SolarWinds investigation, where the lead field office investigating the breach of SolarWinds. And then another one that you've probably seen recently in the headlines is the DarkSide ransomware variant. So that was involved in the attack, the ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline, and our office was able to success seize a significant portion of that ransom back. We are what you would consider a full service office. You know, we have the second largest cyber investigative program within the FBI, only behind FBI New York. We handle all the cyber threats that you would consider. Just because you're based in San Francisco, you cover all national cyber matters. So the way it works in the FBI, it's really 
venue specific or territory specific. So um, you, if I if I say AOR, that means area of responsibility. There's a lot of acronyms and jargon in the U.S. government. Our AOR, San Francisco's area of responsibility, is the entire San Francisco Bay Area, which comprises 17 counties. And the way it works is if there is a company that is headquartered in our area that gets hit with a cyber attack, then we are responsible for it. So, for example, even though Colonial Pipeline got hit with the dark side ransomware attack, the first dark side ransomware attacks were against companies in the Silicon Valley. So we opened up an investigation and then we keep that uh, dark side variant. You know, we're the lead office for it. And so even though uh, Colonial Pipeline is headquartered in Atlanta, we coordinate with the Atlanta field office to collect the evidence we need for our investigation. The podcast has been mostly focused for developers, engineers, and ops people. Yeah, I think some of these issues also affect the C-suite. Um, do you have any advice on sort of issues to be on the lookout for? It's all the same stuff at this point. I, I think what you've seen since COVID started, and we had the lockdowns in last March, that everything has been accelerated. The COVID-19 pandemic has really accelerated cybercrime and then state-sponsored computer network operations in general. What I would tell all of your listeners to listen to, you know, whether they're in the C-suite or whether they're cybersecurity practitioners is, I found that supply chain compromises, I think, you know, we had just mentioned SolarWinds before, that's one of the really big deals. Ransomware has become a really big problem. And I would say a large cause of that is a, people working from home, maybe going through their wireless router at home is not as secure as going through a corporate router behind a firewall. The other thing is with ransomware, there's now ransomware as a service. So you still have these large organized crime groups that are in charge of developing the ransomware and setting up the, you know, the money laundering services, you know, the, the, the money mule network. However, they have this new thing called ransomware as a service. So just think of a fast food franchise and you could yeah. be a knucklehead in your mom's basement. If you can afford the franchise fee, then you could just get access to a control panel like for dark side. And then, you know, at your fingertips, you'll be able to do scanning for vulnerable systems and you'll be able to deploy the ransomware and you'll have access to a money mill network that will help you launder the funds and then hopefully cash out the money too. Unfortunately, it's a lot easier now and that's why we see a lot of other actors who would typically be considered low skill actors getting into the ransomware game. For people who aren't familiar, ransomware is software which would go in and encrypt your system and you have to pay the money for the encryption key. Exactly. And the official FBI stance is to not pay the ransom. And there's really two reasons for that. Number one is it's a sucker bet. In my experience, about one out of every four times you pay the ransom, you get the key that perfectly decrypts all of your data. For the other three out of four times, they may give you the key, but a lot of your data will still be corrupted after you try to decrypt it. So you know, you're going to be spending, even after you paid the ransom, you're going to be spending extra money to remediate your systems anyway. So I think it's better to just not spend the money on the ransom and put all of that towards remediation. The second reason not to do it is because you will just be emboldening the criminals. I think we're all familiar that in South America, kidnapping is a cottage industry, and we do not want ransomware to be a cottage industry. 
although it is really turning into one in the last year and a half. I think a lot of the ransomware sort of Windows based, so I guess they might attack smaller businesses, which may not be super tech savvy. They might have like MSPs, like a doctor's office or a dental office. If you were to sort of wake up and suddenly found you all of your systems were um, had a ransomware attack, like what should you do? So hopefully, and this will be one of my bits of advice. My first bit of advice is hopefully you have an incident response plan of some sort and you'll, you know, dust it off. Hopefully you had a hard copy because if it's on your computer network, you're going to be in trouble. And then you should just start following your plan. Typically that will involve calling all of the relevant stakeholders, right? You're going to be calling your C-suite. You're going to call your general counsel. You'll be working with your information security and the other bits of the uh, information technology staff. And then you're just off to the races. If you're a large organization, you may have an incident response company on retainer. You may have a cyber insurance company that has a portfolio of vendors that you're supposed to use. And then hopefully maybe step 17 or step 23 is contact law enforcement. That's where uh, you're going to pick up the phone. Typically, it's on a Friday evening after your hair has been on fire and you're going to make a phone call to me and then we're going to talk it out and see if there's anything that we can do to help. And is there much you can really do? I hate to say it, but it depends, right? So if it's a variant of ransomware that we know, sometimes in very small circumstances, we do have the decryption key that we can share with you. But at the very least, what we're going to be able to do is if you are able to figure out what variant of ransomware that is attacking your company's network, we probably have an investigation on it. And we've probably already engaged with dozens of victims before. So we've collected a list of indicators that we can share back with you to help you and your remediation company to do the threat hunting. That's probably the most valuable thing that we do. We're also there to help offer guidance if you decide to pay the ransom. Uh, you know, what are the pitfalls that you should be looking out for? What are the things to be mindful of? So we, we offer a wealth of at least information that we can share. And we always, we make it a point within our field office, if you've been hit by a ransomware attack, we're gonna talk to you on the phone and we'll, we'll try to do what we can. But at the end of the day, you know, we are the FBI, the I stands for investigation, we're not the FBR. So it will be up to you and your incident response company to do the repair portion. I don't think I've had any friends who've been hit by ransomware, but one thing that does come up pretty common is the business email compromise, um, which I saw was under your cybercrimes. You kind of mentioned this is sort of more of a white collar than necessarily a cybercrime, but for people who aren't familiar with the uh, um, BEC, can you sort of say what it is? And Yeah, absolutely. So BEC, business email compromise. So yeah, you're using the term of art that we like to use within the industry. That is where someone is either sending you an email or a text, and it is just eliciting you to do some action. Typically, they are pretending to be a vendor or a contractor or someone who you are expecting to send money to. And what they will do is they will say, here, you know, like I'm your vendor and I've changed my bank account. Please wire money to this new account. A lot of people fall for it, right? They're, you know, working quickly. Everyone is, you know, overworked, understaffed at this point, trying to get everything done. And they may not realize that they've just wired money to an account controlled by a bad guy. And so they may not notice because in most of the cases for BECs, they, the bad guys will use a domestic account. They'll have set up a money mule network. 
So if you ever see signs like on the side of the road that says, do you want to work from home? A lot of times you are being a money mule, right? So you have set up an account. Money will just mysteriously land in that account. You can take a hundred bucks off or whatever they allow you. And then you're supposed to send it on to another place. And so that way they'll launder money domestically. But inevitably, these money transactions end up going overseas. Now, I do have one bright spot. So, you know, there's too many of these business email compromises for us to open a case on every one. But we've set up this thing called the financial fraud kill chain. And so if you go to our website, ic3.gov, you can just fill out this form and send it to us. And I promise you that we have human beings looking for financial fraud kill chain requests 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we know that if we can act on it in the first 24 hours, we have an 82% success rate of clawing your money back. That was our statistics as of last year. Yes, yeah, so I think my follow-up question is, at what point should the crime be reported? I'm guessing within 24 hours of wiring them the money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Within 24 hours and anything shady that you see happen, even if it doesn't involve any loss to you, if you have email addresses or bank accounts or any of that information to share, you know, that are belonging to a bad guy, we would greatly appreciate you sharing that information because it could be connected to an existing investigation. And then we'll be following up with you to, you know, see what else happened. But at the very least, you could at least report it to us online. And it'll literally take you five minutes. Moving on, another sort of issue is intellectual property. It's a big concern for Bay Area companies, both, I think, from insider threats, competitors, and possible nation states. How are like trade secrets defined? And when does a sort of trade secret become an intellectual property crime? So that is a good question. So full disclosure, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but the way trade secrets work is pretty much how is it handled? How is this information handled? And so you have to do your due diligence as an organization to protect your information. And it can't just be, oh, well, you know, we're leaving it out in the open in this file and whoever can access it. There have to be at least uh, certain levels of security because at the end of the day, like, you know, if we catch the bad guy and they'll say, well, this wasn't a trade secret because they just left it on their publicly facing website or they did not securely configure their website properly. And, you know, anyone could just scan it and find yeah. that information. So you need to be able to uh, securely store your data, whether it's electronic or physical. And, and that's one of the ways that you can tell whether something is a trade secret or not, right? Like the recipe for Coca-Cola, right? Like, you know, you hear it's in, you know, a double safe in Fort Knox somewhere in Georgia. Well, that will let people know that, yes, we are doing our due diligence to treat this as a trade secret. And then the theft happens when, despite all of your security measures, someone is able to thwart them and then abscond with your information and then use it for their own purposes. Lastly, the last sort of category I found was financial issues, either securities or wire fraud. Um, this is also a pretty common one for Bay Area companies I've heard about in the startup world. Can you tell me how the FBI is involved in these types of investigations? Both of those types of fraud, like securities fraud, actually there's a big trial going on right now, the Theranos trial, right? So that's an investment fraud situation. So the FBI, we prosecute those types of crimes all the time. A lot of the time we really rely on referrals from the public. 
Typically, it is former employees at a company who see some shady dealings and do not want to be a part of it, or it's current employees who know that something is going on. Sometimes, you know, regulators are able to catch things or we will get anonymous tips. But that's how we usually learn about these types of fraud is, you know, just through the regular gumshoe law enforcement techniques. If you're an employee and you think something sort of fishy is happening at your company, what's the best way to sort of report possible issue? You can also use ic3.gov or you can just go to uh, tips.fbi.gov. Either of those will work. So F IC3 is mostly, you know, online focused, cyber focused. Tips.fbi.gov, that's for all of the threats or all of the tips that we get. Um, from past episodes, you know, I've worked with a lot of CISOs. At what point um, would a CISO consider contacting the FBI? I think this kind of goes back to your point earlier of you have like a checklist. As you're going through that checklist, what sort of things did you look for once you started the interaction? So what sort of um, logs and data is useful to um, provide to you? I'll, I'll take the first part of that question. Yeah, if you have an incident response, you'll have like some sort of internal company measure of, and it'll typically be, uh, a data loss, right? Like we've lost this many thousands of customer data or we've been damaged financially this amount of money. So the federal statute, it's only $5,000, but as you can imagine, we can't just take every $5,000 case. We have to prioritize based on financial losses. So typically we will get a call from a CISO. It depends on the situation because if it's someone who's never dealt with us before, they may call us you know only when it's a very high amount although if we've already established a relationship they, they know they can just pick up the phone and call me and we can talk it out now i'll be honest right like hey i don't know if we would be able to open an investigation for this you know the financial threshold's not enough hey it doesn't seem like you have any financial loss or data loss at all and, and you know we'll, we'll be able to have the conversation i guess i'm going to get to my second uh, tip is that people and organizations, they should already have established uh, lines of communication with their local FBI field office. Just so that, you know, the first time you're calling the FBI isn't that frantic Friday evening, you'll at least have an email or you'll know who to call ahead of time. So that when you're following your incident response plan, you can just, as you said, just check things off. For sort of keeping logs, I know there's certain requirements if you're going through sort of FedRAMP or HIPAA, when you kind of get them, like what sort of logs and data is useful for an investigation? So I would say all of the logs that you would think of for doing your own incident response. So these are going to be the firewall logs. These are going to be your, your mail server logs. They're going to be your antivirus logs. They're going to be just your typical office and windows logs. Like those are all super useful for us. What I always like to say is, People usually do not realize that they've been breached until 90 days after the breach actually happened. So it behooves your organization to have at least 90 days worth of logs. I would prefer six months to 12 months worth of logs just because, just because the average is 90 days from breach to detection. That doesn't mean that there are people who have been hacked for a year and not realized it. And we've had companies that have not realized they've been hacked for a year until something really shady happens or unless the bad guys make a mistake and you know they, they trip whatever alarms. But having at least a year's worth of logs really will help us in our investigations. Yeah, and obviously the podcast is called Access Control. If an adversary is in the network, what should you do? So I, I think it depends on 
what type of organization you are. But most of the time, you're going to want to cut them off, right? Like that means cutting your internet connection and then trying to figure out what the heck happened. That's the majority of cases. I know that there are companies that are a little more sophisticated and they've set up honey nets, right? So to try to draw the actors so that they can learn more about their tactics uh, to share with their incident response company as well as with law enforcement. I would say in most cases, I don't recommend doing this because the bad guys could be distracting you and you think you've got them covered, but while you're looking in front, they're sneaking in some other back door that you didn't even know they had open. Yeah, because if they already have lateral movement in your network, it's probably already game over. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> disconnecting from the internet's pretty much the safest bet. <laughs> yeah. And um, another common theme that's come up of late has been around supply chain risks. You know, we've seen a lot the last year with... Um, various companies running into the supply chain getting compromised. Can you tell me about how the FBI works in this area? Both the cyber program in the FBI and the counterintelligence program in the FBI, we are both really focused on this. From the cyber aspect, it, you know, it's obviously related to the technology companies that uh, comprise your network or that are a part of your network. All the software companies, the hardware appliance companies, that's where we're really focused. And then on the counterintelligence side, they're like very hardware focused as well as like where are these vendors from? Where are they located? Who could they potentially be working for? And I think you and I both know in this industry, much of the stuff that we are using right now is made in China, manufactured in China. But I would say that there's a big difference between something being manufactured in China and then something being designed in China, right? So if it's American made, you know, there's a lot of prominent companies that are American made, but still manufactured in China, I would, you know, from a risk management standpoint, I still think that's safer as opposed to Chinese designed and Chinese manufactured. You know, we have lots of customers and companies who use open source software and they often include lots of external sort of libraries into sort of like, I guess that's your, your bill of materials, which I guess also applies for hardware and software. At the end of the day, you, you have to make money. It's all about risk management. It's all about as long as you're aware of what your exposure is and you can weigh what the risks are and you have taken enough mitigation strategies for these risks, that's all you can do at the end of the day. How would you ever make money if you were just like a little turtle and you just hid you know, in a, in a hole? You would not make any money at all, right? But So you have to get out of your shell, get out of the hole, and you have to be able to take on some risks. But it has to be a smart risk, and then you have to have contingencies in place so that you can be resilient and snap back after you've been breached, because invariably, every single organization, FBI included, will be breached, right? Like, so we were impacted by the SolarWinds investigation. You know, we were able to snap back. That's really the key test. Yeah. And I know we had um, the ex-VP of security from NPM, which is common for um, node modules, and he said actually a lot of it would be around, uh, it would be kind of like script kiddies trying to run like crypto miners on infrastructure. And I guess that's very different from a nation state attack. If you think something is more mischievous than just sort of a script kiddie, does that sort of change when you should sort of interact with the um, FBI or how you should report it? No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would ask people to feel comfortable reporting to us regardless of if it's a script kitty or nation state, but these are very different levels and your information security personnel are going to be able to tell. 
like for the Solar Winds investigation or for Hafnium, you know, when Microsoft announced that. That's very bespoke. It is very tailored and it screams nation state. Obviously, there should be more concern with that uh, in general. And, and you would definitely call the FBI. If you think there's an advanced persistent threat involved, if there's a script kitty, typically you have the technological wherewithal to be able to boot them off, right? And I, I'd still appreciate you reporting that through IC3.gov so that we can handle them. Because a lot of times if these are like 16-year-old, 17-year-old, Invariably boys, I don't know why, but, but you know, in their mom's basement doing these things, we can just go and knock and have a talk with them and say, hey, like, you know, you're a smart kid. Why don't you stay on the straight and narrow? Don't try to steal stuff or, you know, become an affiliate for a ransomware crew. You should just go to college, get a computer science degree and then work for one of these tech companies just like you. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. So, if, um, you know, I have a young daughter, but when she's kind of older, possibly trying to hack people um <laughs> and if parents are in a fit, uh, similar situation do you know of any sort of programs that are sort of help the black hat turn to a white hat i think having good parental involvement is the best but there are lots of good nonprofit organizations right girls who code you know there, there's like a lot of good ones right now and i think you know both of my daughters have taken coding classes in school and in, in summer programs and this is just a regular thing now and, and you know since we've both admitted that we have daughters i do want to say that the disparity in the technology field especially around coders and programmers it's heavily skewed male female i think the last statistics i saw were 80 percent male and and that's that's not right i think that the more diversity that we can have in, in all industries the, the better off we will be I think we've covered this kind of already, but you know, as the TSA say, I don't know if actually the TSA does say this, but they say this in the London underground. If you see something, say something. What's the best way to send in a tip or work more formally? Kind of, as you said, it's good to get introduced to the local field office. If you just want to report a tip because you're tired of that Nigerian prince sending you emails, then IC3.gov is the way to go. If it's something that you don't think is cyber related, but you think the FBI should know about, definitely see something, say something, go to tips fbi.gov like and you know or or you can just um, go on to your favorite search engine and you know try to figure out where your local FBI office is we have operators 24 7 who are, are ready to take calls changing gears a little bit you know I've met um, a few agents during when I used to live in San Francisco now in Oakland often the first time you meet like an FBI agent you have a certain archetype in mind and often they're very different do you have any advice for people kind of similar to yourself who are thinking about changing careers from industry to um, joining the Bureau? I, I hadn't told you, but like I had actually worked in the semiconductor industry for 12 years before I joined the Bureau. So we are always looking to hire a more diverse workforce and every type of job skill that you can imagine we need within the FBI. If you're specifically looking at the special agent ranks, then we're, we're definitely hiring for diversity. But right now we're leaning more heavily on those who have a technological bent, those who have a financial bent, or you know those who have a background, like who have a law degree. So we have some pretty highly qualified people who gave up lucrative jobs so that they could you know work for the FBI and, and other government service as well. But we're really hiring all types of people. Anything that you can imagine, we definitely need in the FBI. And how did you find the change from the semiconductor industry 
to sort of cyber crimes because I guess semiconductors it's a very uh, waterfall sort of industry six sigma it's probably the same process driven but also kind of different it's completely different <laughs> yeah we we don't use six sigma there's no black belt going on and in, in the fbi you know except for actual you know martial arts I, I would say the company i worked at i'm not going to name it but it was a very large bureaucratic corporation and so i've slid into a very large governmental bureaucracy so there for me the transition was actually pretty easy i think the difference is you know as an engineer if I'm doing a really good job, what that means is I'm generating more profit for my company. However, in the FBI, if I'm doing a really good job, I'm either saving people's lives or I'm preventing you know, someone's life savings from being stolen or I'm preventing a human being from being trafficked for prostitution, right? So it's very different objectives. And I would say that it's much more of a fulfilling career, at least for me. So we're coming up onto the end. Do you have any last closing tips for startups, either big or small? I've already said, number one, establish communication with your FBI office. Number two, have a good incident response plan. So I have two more tips. Number three, if you are not using multi-factor authentication to be able to access your email or your corporate networks, you have to do that. That will take care of the vast majority of problems. And then the fourth piece of advice is for ransomware attacks. The number one key to handling a ransomware attack is prevention and that's through backups, right? So backup your most critical data and for your listeners, I'll make this apply to them in their real life. Uh, we like to use the three, two, one backup method. So you should have at least three backups of your most critical data on two separate mediums. So typically that's a solid state, you know, external drive and the cloud, right? And then one of your backups should be offline at all times because we have observed that with all the new variants of ransomware, they find your online backups and they corrupt them. Those are the four tips that you do. You will be in so much better shape and ready for that breach when it inevitably happens. Those are some great tips to close out. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. This podcast was created by Teleport. Teleport allows engineers and security professionals to unified access for SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications and databases across all environments. To learn more, visit us at goteleport.com.